Welcome back to Serious Epidemiology. I am Matt Fox from the Boston University School of Public Health, and I am joined once again by my friend and co-host, Dr. Haley Bannock from the University of Toronto. Haley, how you doing? I'm good, thanks, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm wondering if you can tell me what is going on in the background of the video that I'm looking at for you right now. There is a man in a, I don't know, maybe a graduation uniform behind you. What, who is this yes. fine gentleman? Andrew James Rhodes, mm. Director of School of Hygiene, Professor and Head of Department of Microbiology. That is who that is. He is going to be staring at me for this entire podcast, <laughs> and I'm not sure how comfortable I feel with him. There, let me just shift a little bit. He's judge- there we go. That's better. Now he's, he's not judging me. He's not staring you. Anyway, so we are here today to talk about Chapter 25 of Modern Epidemiology, Causal Inference with Time-Varying Exposures. This is a chapter that I think, you know, I haven't looked back at older editions of Modern Epidemiology, but I'd be curious in the evolution of the book when this came in, because I would say that time-varying exposures is something that we have come to recognize is really important to pay attention to. We've always recognized that it was of importance in that we've always acknowledged that when you are dealing with an exposure, people can move between exposure groups over time. They can move from, say, unexposed to exposed, depending on what it is. And in some, for some exposures for which you can go back and forth, you can go from exposed back to unexposed. But I'm not sure that we actually thought about the implications of time-varying exposures quite as much as we probably should until probably the last 20 years or so. And I'm curious whether that's your experience with time-varying exposures. Yes, I appreciate how much our field is moving towards recognizing this as an important issue and explicitly discussing it and training folks on how to deal with it. Because I think truly anything else is just a simplification that previously maybe we just didn't have the methods or analytic strategies to properly deal with. Yeah, and I think it's important because I think what we've learned is that if we ignore the very complex structures you know, data generating mechanisms, if you want to call it that, that arise when both exposures and confounders can vary over time, we run the risk of generating analytic results that don't actually represent causal effects because we haven't appropriately dealt with the time-varying nature of the exposures. And so just to make it explicit, when we say causal inference with time-varying exposures, we are speaking of exposures that can change over time. Any, you know, one person's confounder is another person's exposure. So it's just worth noting that when we talk about time-varying exposures, that also refers to the confounders that can potentially change. And the complex interrelations between the confounders and the exposure can lead to some really challenging analytic problems that we'll get into, but, you know, it's something that we certainly need to acknowledge. Yeah, so the chapter talks about this concept of feedback loops, and and I'd be curious to get your, your thoughts on it, because I thought it was an interesting place to start in the chapter. In my opinion, thinking about time-varying exposures and time-varying confounders is conceptually important, but then feedback loops are on an additional level of complexity, and they seem to jump right into the feedback loops topic. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on why you think they did that or what your thoughts are on that topic. Yeah, I will do that, but can you, for the listener, just define what we mean by feedback loop? Sure. So the textbook talks about this complex problem about feedback loops. So it's the possibility that the outcome that you're studying or something related to that outcome affects 
a subsequent value of the exposure in addition to the exposure affecting the outcome. So it talks about the idea of this being causal inference in both directions. So to disentangle this problem, you need multiple measures of your exposure, as well as multiple measures of your outcome and multiple measures of your covariates over time to disentangle this bi-directional or cyclical or feedback loop relationship that they talk about. Yeah, so I think that we do a little bit of a disservice when we talk about feedback loops to those who are trying to understand them. Not that it, it is incorrect. I mean, I acknowledge that it is certainly is a reasonable way to think about it. But there are no real feedback loops on an individual level as a person is moving through time. My exposure today can affect my confounder tomorrow or later today, but it has to be at a later point in time, which can then affect my exposure at a later point in time. That's not really a feedback loop. It's a, I think we've said this before, it's a feedback spiral in the sense that there is a causal chain that's happening. But when we account for time, the feedback chain is just a series of A causes B, which causes A at a later time, which causes B at a later time. It's not actually a feedback loop in the sense of nothing is going back in time and changing the past. But of course, I mean, we talk about feedback in audio feedback, and that obviously is the same idea, right? It's it's not altering the past. So I get that technically it's not incorrect. I just, I feel like it gives a sense that the future is affecting the past. So I view, I call it in my head a, a longitudinal process. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, you draw it out in, in a DAG format, it, you, you know, you can represent this these relationships as a longitudinal process. And when I got to this chapter, I wondered, okay, so this is about feedback loops. There must be a a more complex structure that we're talking about, or, you know, there must be something that is actually feeding back. And if I'm understanding it correctly, that's not exactly what is being discussed here. When I do think about feedback loops, I think they're often discussed in a medical clinical context. When you think about, I'm not going to get these right, but, you know, levels of a hormone that go up and then as a result, your body does something and then the levels of the hormone go down. My biology teacher from high school would be horrified at that description. But I think there are true feedback loops, and that is not really what we're talking about in this chapter. I think that is what we're talking about. I just sort of trying to make the point that when you include time in a causal diagram, I think it just sort of reflects a causal process that is changing over time, that if we measured two variables consistently over time, we could tease out whether A is affecting B or B is affecting A, although maybe I'm overly optimistic in that. But I think what we're saying is when we talk about causal feedback loops, we're saying there's some kind of process where A affects B in the future, which affects A. A in the future after B and so on and so forth. And so there's this causal process. But to go back to your original point, I do think that we are probably getting a little bit ahead of ourselves by jumping right into feedback loops as opposed to just thinking about the time varying nature of variables. Because I do think that in the way that we teach epi methods, at least early on, and this is not a critique so much as it's a a recognition of the reality of how people learn, that we teach as if everything were a point exposure. Everything is a an exposure that you experience the entire dose of immediately, instantaneously, and then we follow you forward and see what happens in terms of the outcome. When in reality, even without these feedback loops, most of the exposures that we're interested in epidemiology are things that can change over time. Yeah, it's like teaching the simplest case. You're teaching the simplest case, and then hopefully you can go on and build on those principles. The simplest case would be a bi- 
binary point exposure. And ideally, at a later point, you would go on to teach about time varying exposures, continuous exposures, how do you parameterize things over time, but that doesn't always seem to get included in coursework. And therefore, it's difficult to implement those kinds of ideas in practice when you're not explicitly taught it in your program. Yeah, now I, I think one place where we probably do some of this is when we start dealing with allocating person time to exposures and allowing people to move between exposure groups and not just from exposed to unexposed, but we allow them to move from, say, a low level exposure to a higher level of exposure. And so there I do think we are thinking about how things change over time. And so I think in cases where we think about the how people change exposure groups, the book certainly does a good job. And the book does acknowledge the fact that in those cases where there aren't these feedback loops, that standard regression-based approaches that account for time-varying covariates will work well. And so we don't always need the methods that we're probably going to talk about, marginal structural models, G formulas, and structural mean models. But that there are cases where your standard time-updated covariate time-to-event model works just fine even when the covariates change, even when the exposures change. Yeah. And I think that's a good point. I think that people are often afraid of time-dependent covariates and afraid of including them because it seems so complex. And I agree that as the book talks about, there are specific scenarios where you need to dip your toe into some of these other methods like marginal structural models. But there's a lot of other simpler ways, as you described, you know, using Cox proportional hazards models and those kind of things that allow you to incorporate this information. So you're considering it without jumping headfirst into the the causal modeling approaches. Well, so let's jump in there, though, because so then what the chapter does is it then goes on to explain the scenarios in which these feedback loop situations will prevent you from getting the right causal estimate, even in a time updated model. And you need instead a something like a marginal structural model, which is a, a model where you use weighting to remove the confounding rather than using the stratification based regression approaches. And and the weighting-based approach allows you to remove the confounding without creating the bias that comes about. And just to be explicit about it, the bias comes about because when you have these feedback loop mechanisms, your confounder is both a confounder that is changing over time, but it is also an intermediate. It is on the pathway from the exposure to the outcome. So to give you the example that, that I always use because it's from HIV and I know it really well, HIV treatment. Treatment. HIV treatment was historically anyway assigned to people, assigned meaning it was prescribed based on CD4 counts. CD4 counts are a measure of your immune system function. So we waited until your CD4 count drops really low and then we give you the HIV treatment, which has the effect of restoring your immune system. And the way that HIV treatment prevents you from dying is by restoring your immune system. So the founder CD4 count affects whether or not you go on to treatment. But once you go on to treatment, the treatment affects the confounder. And if you were to adjust for CD4 count over time, you would remove the confounding by CD4 count of the effect of HIV treatment on, say, mortality. But you would also remove the effect of HIV treatment on mortality because it is mediated through HIV treatment. And so you are in a situation where if you don't adjust, you're going to get the wrong answer because you have confounding. 
if you do adjust, you're going to get the wrong answer because you're adjusting for a mediator. And so the solution is one of these weighted approaches. I mean, there are a number of approaches. We could talk about them, but one of the most common is marginal structural models where you weight the data and those weights change over time. And what that weighting does is it removes the confounding without removing the mediating effect, which is pretty brilliant in my view. Yeah. So these are classes of models that you use when you have, let's say, an exposure measured at three time points, uh, X1, X2, and X3. And you're interested in the joint effect of exposure at all of those time points on whatever outcome you're interested in. So when you're in this scenario where you have the joint effects of a time-varying exposure and time-varying confounders, you may be in that scenario that you described if that's the causal mechanism that you've hypothesized. You can't use standard regression models. You can't just put those variables, those time-dependent covariates in your model because as Matt said, you're in trouble either way. And so you need to venture into these weighting approaches or G formula type approaches. So there's a lot of scenarios that fit into that. But in order to recognize it, you really have to draw out a DAG to see which direction the arrows are going and what are the relationship between the variables that I have in my causal mechanism. Exactly. And what's interesting to me is you said, or I said, and you agreed that there are these scenarios where a time updated, say Cox model will work just fine if we have exposures and covariates that are changing over time, but we don't have this feedback loop. In other words, the confounder is a confounder over time, but it's not also a mediator. Then we can just adjust for it. I guess my question is, how often do you think we're in the situation where the confounder is not also a mediator? That's impossible to answer because it depends so much on the question you're interested in and what the substantive area you're looking at. You know, I actually don't know how to answer that because I think there are scenarios where that is relevant. You know, I think probably a lot of the time we have time updated covariates that we're interested in, but it also depends on the data you have available. You need data that allows you to do that. And if you don't have that data, you can't do it. So even if you believe that that's the real structure, if you want to understand an effect and you don't have that data, do you not run your models? Do you change your question? It's too much of an it depends question to to answer that all out. Yeah, you bring up a really interesting problem, though, of course, because I think what happens is often we treat exposures as if they are time fixed, not because we actually believe they're time fixed, but because we don't have the data. But not having the data doesn't solve the problem because if, say, the example that I gave of HIV treatment and CD4 counted, all I collect is you go on to treatment and I collect information on baseline CD4 count, well, then I'm just going to ignore the confounding that happens by CD4 count over time and I'm going to get the wrong answer. So I, I don't yeah, know Yeah, it's that... one of the hardest problems that we have as epidemiologists. Do you have the data to really answer the question that you want to answer? And are you willing willing to make uh, simplifying assumptions about the data you have relative to the data you wish you had and how true are those simplifying assumptions. A lot of your study validity rests on on whether those are, are true or not. I, I see this all the time with people who use administrative data, you know, with millions and millions of people in their databases to try to answer causal questions, but they don't have individual level confounders like smoking and obesity status. And what does your estimate even mean without those variables? 
variables. You often don't have the data to answer the questions you want or you truly wish you could have to answer that question. Yes. So what do we do in those scenarios? Because if you think about the HIV treatment example that I gave, the early studies that were done on you know, observational studies of the effects of HIV treatment were strongly biased towards the null because they were adjusting for CD4 count changing over time without doing the weighting or only adjusting for baseline CD4 count, in which case you end up biasing towards the null. You still observe an effect of HIV treatment, but nowhere near as large as it actually is and certainly much smaller than was found in trials. And so you could come to the conclusion that HIV treatment works. It just doesn't work as well as we thought it did in the trials. But the reality is it actually does work as well as was observed in the trials. We were just using the wrong methods. You could say it's a success because we still observe a benefit, but you could also say it's a failure because we would vastly underestimate the benefits and might conclude that this is just the difference between trials and real world when in fact it's the difference between unbiased and biased. I mean, what do you do? You, you have to find better data, right? You can't come up with the right answer with the wrong data. And fortunately, I don't think there's anything fancier or more insightful than that. Is a biased answer that's biased still gives the correct binary. So is there an effect? Isn't there an effect? But gives the wrong estimate of the effect better than no answer at all. I mean, I don't know how you ever know whether you're in, in one scenario or whether you are, are getting the biased correct versus biased incorrect. But sure, I guess if there's zero information on a topic, providing some kind of information is good, but uh, but you'll never know which scenario you're in. So I guess it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous argument to make. It is. I agree with you. And of course, I'm stipulating there that somehow we know that the bias right. was such that we didn't get the binary yes, no, is there an effect wrong? It could be the opposite, right? We could have a scenario where yeah. we are biased so much that we come to the conclusion there is no effect, there's no benefit of HIV treatment, for example, or worse, that there is harm because, you know, CD4 count is if we wait until you get really sick, then give you HIV treatment, HIV treatment is going to be associated with worse outcomes that if we can't remove that confounding, we could come to the complete wrong conclusions. It's tricky. It's a really tricky question. Yeah, I think this is a really great spot for analyses that Elizabeth Rosemayeta and, and some of her colleagues have done with simulation studies that emulate real world data to try to answer questions about bias and whether it's in this direction or that direction. Simulation studies are, if designed well, I think are, are the best way to answer the kinds of questions that you're raising right now. Yeah. So, and then to go back to the question I asked you earlier, you know, how often do you think we're in the situation where you've got a covariate, let's say, a confounder that can vary over time, but is not a mediator. You know, I don't, obviously there, there's no easy answer. As you point out, it depends, but certainly with drug studies, there's good evidence that it is a common problem. If you think about blood pressure treatment, we monitor your blood pressure. We wait until it gets above a certain level, and then we put you on antihypertensives, and that brings down your blood pressure, which ultimately, hopefully, prevents you from experiencing a heart attack. So you've got that feedback loop. Anti-cholesterol medications. We monitor your cholesterol. It gets too high. We put you on a statin. It brings it to your cholesterol down. And that leads to, hopefully, reduced risk of heart attack. So I think there's a lot of these scenarios in drug epi 
whether or not it occurs in other scenarios, harder to say. But one thing I will say is if you were to use a marginal structural model or some kind of a standardization-based approaches, which I think is fair to say that's what all of these methods are. They are a generalization of standardization. Even if the confounder is not also a mediator, you'll get an unbiased estimate. Whereas if you use the standard approach, if it turns out it's a mediator, you're going to get a biased estimate. So why wouldn't we just start teaching people to use these methods as the standard? Because again, even if you don't have the problem that, that these models are designed to solve, I don't think you're going to go wrong with the answer. Now, maybe you're going to get wider confidence intervals. I'm, I'm not sure about that. But it just seems to me that we have a set of models that we could be using that are more likely to get us to a valid answer with caveats, right? There are times when these models probably also won't work or won't work when standard models will. But in general, why wouldn't we just teach students to use these models? Oh, there's a lot there. Okay, so I think you've raised a really good point, which is that we're often in this scenario. And I think that the fact that we are often in this scenario is why we have seen an enormous rise in papers that use things like marginal structural models, because now that the techniques are out there, they're becoming more well understood. I think we are beginning to see this more commonly, even in, you know, the non-FBA exclusive journals. You know, sometimes I'll see it in a clinical type of journal or an applied type of journal because people are beginning to recognize these are useful techniques. I would agree. I think they are on the rise, mm -hmm. but as a percentage of all papers, I still think it's a, you know, it's a rounding error how often these models are used when, you know, it seems to me that we could avoid a lot of problems if we all just agreed we should start teaching these, you know, after we've taught the sort of standard logistic and, and survival analysis regression, the next step is to teach these methods, not to go on and teach more sophisticated models that still don't account for the feedback loops. Yeah, I mean, but as we talked about earlier in the podcast, oftentimes students end up learning about binary exposures that are a point exposure. So there's a big gap, I think, with what needs to be taught compared to what needs to be used in the real world. So that's one point. To come back to some other points about marginal structural models, firstly, they're complex. It's understanding what they're actually doing, fitting the models. It's actually a two-step process where you first have to fit these inverse probability of treatment weights, which are weights that are calculated as the inverse of the probability of the exposure level that an individual actually has, conditional on their past exposure history and their covariate. And so then you fit these weights, and then you have to take the product of the weights at different time points. So if you have three time points, you'll create a weight at each of those time points, and then take the product of that as your final weight. So that's the first step in actually doing marginal structural models, we'll say. And then the second step is you fit this marginal structural modeling, use some kind of regression model where you are estimating the effect of your exposure on your outcome using those weights to weight your regression model. So the marginal structural model process is actually a two-step process, and it does involve complexity that you need to be advanced enough to understand all these various modeling decisions to be able to do it. So I understand where you're coming from, that it would be nice if everyone just did this, but there's complexities involved. There's also specific assumptions you need to understand, all those you know, assumptions related to positivity and consistency and no unmeasured 
and founding. These are, you, you need to understand DAG. So it's not quite as simple as just, I wish everyone could use this all the time. So I guess I would say, I would certainly agree with you that it is more complex than just sticking some data into a logistic regression model and having it spit out an answer, right? You have to do a little bit more work, although the software is catching up. SAS does have a procedure now to do this in one step. Obviously, you're still going to have to set up your data in a way that it can use it, specifically meaning you've got to set up your data in chunks of time for an individual. So one individual might have one observation per person month, and then each of those observations is going to get weighted differently, as you pointed out, because the weights change over time and they multiply over time. And so that is more complex, but there is software to deal with this, or at least the software I should say is getting better for dealing with this. And you're also right that you've got to have the data. And you're also right that you've got to have an understanding of what's actually happening in the process process over time. But I'm not sure that that is any worse than pretending that our exposures are time fixed when they are time varying or ignoring the feedback loop and getting the wrong answer or potentially getting the wrong answer because we didn't realize there was a feedback loop. So I I hear you and I get that it is more complex, but I, I don't know that it's so complex that we can't teach it as the next thing after learning the basic regression models. Yeah, I understand that perspective. And I do wish more people used these approaches because I agree with everything we've talked about. They're very, very useful. I have a question about that SAS procedure. So it fits it in one step, meaning it does the weight and also fits the marginal structural model. So I believe it's PROC causal TRT. And so with PROC causal TRT, you have two model statements. You have a propensity score model and then a final model. So you have two statements in the same procedure, the propensity score model. And we haven't, we haven't explicitly said this, but as you pointed out, the weights that we use in these models are inverse probability of treatment weights. And as you said, that's the inverse of the probability of receiving the exposure level that you actually got conditional on your prior covariate history and your prior exposure history. So the inverse of that is one divided by the probability of receiving the treatment that you received. That is effectively a propensity score if you got the exposure. Let's talk about a binary exposure. It's a propensity score if you got the exposure, and it's one minus the propensity score if you didn't get the exposure. So you set up a model for the propensity score, it then turns it into the weights, and it multiplies them through over time. And then you have this second model that is the model of your outcome. And that second model doesn't have to be adjusted for anything in theory, because a marginal structural model, this is a model where you are going to get the causal effect, assuming you've removed all the confounding, you're going to get the causal effect without adjusting for the covariates because you've removed the confounding through the weighting. So yeah, it does it all in one procedure. It's not doing it in one step. That's interesting. So in my experience using these types of approaches and marginal structural models, creating the weights is a really complicated and time-consuming process. You know, so we haven't talked about yet, but often you'll choose to stabilize the weights. So the propensity score will be in the denominator and the numerator of that weight is the probability that an individual or a person had the exposure history they had conditional on their past exposure history and a set of baseline covariates. So in the numerator, you include baseline covariates. In the denominator, you typically include baseline and time-varying covariates. And removing the time-dependent confounding occurs in that denominator. It does not occur in the numerator. When you stabilize your weights, you actually need to include
include whatever variables you put in that numerator, you do need to include it in your final marginal structural model. You're basically reintroducing confounding and then removing it by including it in your marginal structural model. So even if it's not truly marginal anymore, we still call that using stabilized weights, we still call it a marginal structural model. So creating the weights, deciding what variables go in, deciding are you going to include interaction terms? Are you going to, how are you going to stabilize them? You then need to look at all sorts of plots, looking at the distributions of your weights, often histograms or box plots. You want to check the mean and the variance and the standard deviation of the weights that you create. Sometimes you might choose to truncate your weights. So you chop them off, let's say. At the, Why would you do that? If the, the range of your weights is really large and you have a couple of weights that are enormous or really, really small, but the, the rest of the range is more normally distributed, you might choose to do that to reduce the variance. It's a bias variance trade-off. You're leaving a bit of bias at the expense of, of reducing your variance in the with the weight that you're going to use in your final model. So there's a lot of really small, complex steps that I find are involved in creating the weights. And I'm curious about how you would ever really trust that some SAS statement is just going to take care of all that for you. I guess you could just keep running it over and over again until you had weights that you were happy with. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, the program is just doing some of the programming steps that you would do in the background. It's not dealing with the problems of are these the best decisions to make for the weights, but it'll spit out plots of the distribution of the of the weights so you can look at them. It does all of that for you. So I, I think all this is doing is reducing some of the coding. It's certainly not going to reduce the burden on the individual to model the data correctly and make those decisions. I'm sure you can truncate weights in this procedure in the same way. I just want to go back to though. So truncating the weights you said was a, a bias variance trade-off. That surprised me a little bit. I see what you're saying, but I, I guess I always thought of it as so if a weight that we're using is an inverse probability weight, it's going to be one divided by the probability of receiving the treatment that you got. And the probability is always going to be between zero and one. So if you use an unstabilized weight, so just one in the numerator, you know, the number that you're going to get for a weight is always going to be something greater than or equal to one. If the probability were one, then the weight would just be one divided by one and it'd be one. But if it's anything below one, anything between zero and one, your weight is going to be above one. That can gets really large as the probability of the exposure given a exposure and covariate history gets rarer and rarer, then the weight is going to get really large. That's going to happen in cases where that exposure is really uncommon, meaning there's really going to be a very a small cell, you know, very few people. And my understanding was that I, I get your variance argument, but that we are putting a lot of faith if we say this covariate pattern is so rare that I have to upweight these people people by say a thousand times because there were only one or two people in that cell to balance out the confounding, I've got to upweight them a thousand times. I'm putting a lot of stock in the fact that those few people really do represent what everybody in that possible cell would look like if my sample size were infinite, such that I may have a little bit of bias that I am amplifying through the weighting. So an example of that would be if I have a person with a really rare covariate exposure pattern, it could be simply because I miscoded somebody, right? I, I've gotten their exposure incorrect, and that's why they're in this weird cell when, in fact, we wouldn't really expect anyone to be in that cell. Now I've got misclassification that I'm amplifying 
because I'm up weighting that person so much. So I truncate the weights at say 25 because I'm, I don't want to amplify the, any bias too much. So it seems like it, it's dealing with potentially both variance and bias. I mean, I guess it depends on, okay, let's assume that we're not misclassifying people and putting them in the wrong cell. So we're not introducing misclassification bias for a moment. I was always under the impression, so you truncate as a means of reducing the variance of your weights, the range, let's say, of the weight. But in doing so, there is a covariate pattern that you are in essence excluding, and you're not removing the bias for those individuals with that covariate pattern. So that's why I, in my head, I think of it as leaving bias behind the, at the benefit of reducing your variance for the overall weighting model. Yeah, no, and I would agree with you. I mean, if, if you've got everything perfectly correct and you choose to truncate, then you are leaving bias in the model. I thought of the weighting, though, as a hedge against the idea that maybe we don't actually have a completely unbiased model. And so we're hedging a bit against that. I see the point about the variance as well, but I wonder whether or not it's also a bit of a hedge against bias. Yeah, I, I want to put in a pitch for a paper. One of my faves that I, I read really regularly is by, I believe, Colin Hernan. I mean, it's called something like estimating inverse probability treatment weights for marginal structural models. And it, what I love about this paper, not only does it describe how you create the weights, but it goes through these various scenarios. If you include an interaction term, what happens? If you truncate, what happens? And it goes through this process to help your thought process when you actually want to use this in practice to think of through the various decisions. It's almost like a decision tree paper. And so I, I really, for anyone who's interested in in using this method. I haven't gone through modern epi page by page yet, but in my view, I wish there were more description of how you create inverse probability treatment weights for people to refer to in the textbook. It could be in a different chapter that we haven't yet covered. I mean, that's entirely possible, but I, I want to see this method used more. And I don't think there's enough detail here, as we've discussed, for someone who's completely naive to the method to refer to. Fair enough. I mean, I think that's probably because this is obviously not a textbook on marginal structural models. It's a general textbook on advanced heavy methods, and you'd go to those papers for the specifics. But I do think it's worth going back and just noting before we end that this chapter is set up effectively to introduce this problem. So you've got the time varying exposure problem, and then we extend that to the issue of the places where standard regression-based approaches won't work, the feedback loop issue, or whatever we want to call it. And they then talk about solutions to this problem. They spend the most time talking about marginal structural models. And I think that's because these are the most commonly used. I was going to say probably the simplest to implement, but I don't I don't actually know that that's true. But they're certainly the most popular at the moment approach to dealing with this time varying confounding affected by prior exposure problem. But they do go on to talk about some of the other ones. They don't go into them as much detail. So they talk about structural mean models, G formula, and the parametric G formula. And I'm curious your experiences with those. I, I will just say up front, the reason that I think we've spent so much time talking about marginal structural models and not some of these others is I don't have as nearly as good of a grasp on these other models. And my go-to is the marginal structural model. So I'm curious your thoughts on those other models. My my comment would be the exact same as yours, which is that I have most experience with marginal structural models. I was interested in reading the structural nested model section or the structural mean model section, that it also is a two-stage approach and it's two regression models. The first is a regression model of your outcome on your exposures, if there's multiple exposures, baseline co 
covariates and time-dependent covariates, and you can include interaction terms, let's say, between your exposure measurements. And then you use the coefficients from that linear regression model to calculate some residuals and then use those residuals in a, a second regression model. So when I was reading through it, I thought, that's it? That's all the, you know, when you hear about structural mean models, in my head, it is the fanciest of fancy methods. And then, you know, when I was reading this process, it seemed quite simple. And I would like to explore it a little bit more because it seems like a really helpful approach, especially when you have a continuous exposure or a set of continuous exposure measurements, rather than simplifying it into some silly binary or easy categorical variable, you could use this approach, which doesn't seem all that more complicated. So I, I'm going to put in a little bit of time and, and try to learn these methods a little bit better. They are not methods that I've spent much time using, and therefore, you know, I can't necessarily make a plug for them as to how easy they are to implement. But as they're described in the chapter, I would agree with you. It is worth noting. So I think if my memory is correct and my understanding of the chapter is correct, chronologically speaking, it was the G formula was the first of these methods to be yeah. developed, developed by Jamie Robbins. And they say the initial theory of causal inference for time-varying exposures instead gave formulas for the causal effects based on a generalization of standardization. The generalization is often referred to as the G formula, G generalization. Generalize. Yeah. And so all of these methods are generalizations of standardization. And we talked earlier episodes about standardization versus stratification. To me, here's another case where standardization is really the better approach because standardization works in cases where stratification doesn't. I don't know that there are as many cases is where the reverse would be true, where you can't use the standardization, but you can use stratification. So to me, you know, standardization wins. Certainly, uh, I think that that's the underlying theory behind the G formula is that standardization wins. And I think mathematically, at least in my not significant experience with these methods, is that the math gets very complex. And so sometimes that can be a barrier, I think, to using these methods. But exactly why it fails and you know what happens I'm not sure I, I'm expert enough to discuss that at this point. Yeah, I'm not sure that the math is all that much more complicated than the math that goes into a, a marginal structural model. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, we just have to model the parameters that we need for these models. I say this as someone who doesn't use the G formula. So I'm speaking here just based on my limited understanding of them. But I think it's more that we just are much more familiar with the marginal structural model approach. You, you may be right that it may be a bit simpler to implement, but I don't think the complexity is that much greater. I just think it's much more about the familiarity we have. My understanding is all of these methods simplify to the same answer under the most basic of situations. It's just that when you get these, you know, more complex time varying scenarios, you know, some would be more appropriate in some situations than others, but that they are all in some senses generalizations of the standardization based approach. Yeah, I think that's a really good, maybe a place to wrap up, which is that the beginning we, we you talked about how everyone's uh, make fun of me on Twitter for not being a, a huge soccer fan. It, it was just one person. It was just one everyone, person. Everyone, everyone is doing it. I'd love to hear from anyone who's listening about using uh, structural nested mean models or or the G formula and, and how they compare to using marginal structural models, which is what Matt and I definitely have our, more experience in. So if anyone wants to comment on that, rather than my lack of soccer knowledge, that would be a good point to start off. 
or the G formula or the parametric G formula, any of those other methods that I think others are more schooled in than we are. And in particular, what are the cases where you'd be better off or need to use the G formula? I think some of the assumptions that you need for the G formula may be less than what is needed for a marginal structural model. So you might use it when there are some violations of positivity, you may be able to use one of these other approaches when you can't really use a marginal structural model. I'm not sure about that. So I don't want to say too much, but you know, they all seem to be worth our investing more time in teaching students. Agreed. All right. Well, that is a good place for us to end. So for those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I really want to make my plug for you to consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which by the time this is released will be upcoming in Austin because it will be after Portland, I think, by the time this, this gets released. It also gets you access to the SER library, which gives you access to some really great learning materials, seminars, and activities. Things like the playlists where you want to learn about a particular topic. You can download a, a list of papers that you can read. So find out more at epiresearch.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast from the American Journal of Epidemiology, Casual Imprints, uh, another great podcast we think you will like. And a reminder that the views expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Search. We really appreciate you listening. Be on the lookout for our next episode. Bye, Haley. Bye, Matt.